Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Whether you realize it or not, most of the greatest scientific inventions all follow the same pattern. First comes the physicist or the inventor, and these are the people that first come up with the ideas, like splitting the atom or turning bronze into gold. Second usually comes your engineers, people who are tasked with taking these small science experiments or vague scientific papers and synthesizing them into something real. The third person at the table, though, is probably the most important one of them all as they decide whether that creation becomes a niche science experiment that spends its time in the back rooms of a university, or something that truly changes the lives of each and every person on the planet. And that person, oddly enough, is an economist. To explain what I mean, every year we see amazing breakthroughs in science and technology, but whether it's adopted widespread is actually almost always an economic issue. The car had been around for years, but it wasn't until it became affordable to the general person that it actually became widespread. And nowhere is this concept more evident than in the nuclear power industry. Now, if you're in the business of power generation, you make electricity and then you sell it to power companies and the power companies pay you a set rate for that electricity. Now for nuclear power, private investors were actually really interested in getting involved. The selling point around nuclear was that if you look at coal and oil, they're quite expensive to buy and transport in from other countries. So why not use nuclear? where rather than importing 2.5 million tonnes of coal per year, all you need is just 27 tonnes of nuclear fuel to power your plant for the entire year. Even just in transport, that'll save you a lot of money. And that was the selling point. Nuclear power was cheap, easy, and it came with clean fuel. But in recent years, the underlying math of nuclear power seems to be changing. As an investor, you might be deciding whether to build a gas-fired power station or a nuclear power station. And both have very different costs. Now, a gas-fired power station will cost you probably about $1 billion to build, whereas a nuclear power station will probably be quoted to you at $18 billion to construct, 18 times more than the gas power station. But you know that the fuel is cheap, and once you pay it off, you'll be absolutely rolling in it, whilst that silly gas plant loses 80% of its revenue buying the fuel it needs to power itself, you and your nuclear plant will be making 75% profit on the electricity you make once everything's paid off, because your fuel is much, much cheaper. And that's the understanding that most people have of the nuclear industry. Yes, it's a lot of money up front, but by the time your plant makes it to year 16 or 18, then it's big profits time. However, whilst the owner of the gas plant will have a working operational plant that will be making money in two years, you and your nuclear plant is scheduled to take eight to 10 years to construct, which in actual reality, as we just saw from the new plant that just opened up in the United States, it will probably end up being closer to 14 to 16 years before the plant actually starts producing any power, the entirety of which you aren't making any money. So you're having to deal with no income for 16 years, whilst the interest on your $18 billion loan continues to accrue, pushing the actual cost up to around $30 billion to construct this nuclear plant. So yes, the math has changed a little bit and things take a bit longer and they're a bit more expensive, but I still hear you thinking, okay, still clean, cheap power, and it's great. But then with seemingly no notice, a massive change in the industry would pop up. And it wasn't fusion, it wasn't clean coal, it wasn't even natural gas, but renewables. Renewable energy is turning out to be the biggest pain for nuclear power. What changed the industry wasn't that people felt better about renewables. It was the fact they became cheap enough where companies looking to invest in a new coal plant did the math, and if the grid was ready for it, they worked out that they'd get a better return by instead putting that money toward a renewable power plant. And that exact same thing happened for oil, is currently happening to gas, and is nuclear right in its sights. After all, whilst nuclear power has low-cost fuel, renewables usually have no-cost fuel. And whilst the majority of people would be applauding cheap energy, 
if you've just bought that nuclear power plant, you may not be as happy about it. As if you chose to build that plant, you're now sitting on $35 billion of debt, watching your price per year earned in electricity dropping year by year. In the end, it may not be the oil baron or the NIMBY protester that brings down the nuclear plant, but simply market economics. But if this is the case, then why is the nuclear industry moving in two directions? where countries like China are building more nuclear power plants, while countries like Germany and France are shutting theirs down, or whilst the government cries out for cheap green energy. And will the industry be able to survive in the next few years without massive leaps forward with projects like the SMRs, Gen 4 reactors, or even fusion energy? With these developments, does the economics move back in their favor? So with or without these developments, what is the future of the nuclear energy industry? And what does it mean for our long-term use of fossil fuels? Well. That's some of the questions we're going to be answering here today, looking at the economics of the industry and its long-term financial feasibility. And to get us started and help us unpack the economics of this problem, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Atoms and Accountants Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The, the moving average carbon intensity in Germany shows that the shutdown helped to lower uh, German emissions. Germany replaced its shuttered nuclear plants with solar and wind in just three months. Now, behind that is, are the issues of cost and practicality. Uh, Lazard, the key financial organization that everybody respects, notes that new nuclear level life cost of electricity, the sort of overall figure that one can sort of hit on, is about $160 per megawatt hour, with renewables coming in at about $45 per megawatt hour. So there's a huge cost difference. In the next three years, the world will deploy more new wind and solar than nuclear capacity has built over the last 70 years. Paul Dorfman is the chair of the Nuclear Consulting Group and a visiting fellow at the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex. He's also an honorary senior research associate at the Energy Institute at the University College of London, a senior member of the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust, a senior member of the European Network of Scientists for Social and Environmental Responsibility, an advisory group member to the UK Ministry of Defence on their nuclear submarine dismantling project, as well as a member of the Nuclear Energy Forum. In addition to all this, he also served as the secretary to the UK government's scientific advisory committee examining radiation risks from internal emitters, and is one of the most respected experts when it comes to the economics of nuclear power and power generation. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. It's important to get a nuclear into perspective. Nuclear is actually quite marginal to what's going on. Electricity is a function of energy. Electricity is more or less in developed states about 20% of total energy. And say in, say in the UK, for example, you could say that it's, it was at its height about 20% of, of, of total electricity. So 20% of 20%, that's 4%. You're talking about 4% of UK's total energy. So this notion of nuclear being a sort of a star player is factually not true. Basically, it's very expensive. And the key for it is climate. It's very, very late. Now, UK government department figures say it takes up to 17 years to build one nuclear power station. That's just one nuclear power station. And we now know, if this summer has taught us anything, is that we really have very little time left to deal with the key existential crisis of our time, which is climate change. The key point about nuclear is that it cannot be built fast. It is very, very slow. One of the major reasons for delays seem to stem from the amount of pre-planning and due diligence that goes into preparing for a nuclear plant's construction. So what sort of factors are they actually looking at during this process of pre-planning? 
what are some of the restrictions that make even planning at a nuclear plant quite difficult to do? If one looks at nuclear, it needs to be situated in low-lying land because reactors and spent fuel needs to be cooled. That's playing out in France, where we're seeing the Rhone dry up, the Loire dry up, and the French uh, nuclear reactors having to shut down or pull back uh, generation. And this will only get worse as the years go by. So there are a lot of discussions about why nuclear is in economic terms, in climate terms, and one hasn't even got into questions of health and accident. Well, if that's the case, why are we seeing China making a big push to build lots of nuclear power plants within the country? Or states like Turkey, Egypt, Nigeria, and Belarus also looking to go down this road? Surely if it was such a bad deal, we wouldn't see those guys pushing so hard to go down this particular path. There's been a huge nuclear push on in China, potentially because it's a kind of a last gasp really for the nuclear industry, which has a huge lobby to say, well, look, we're here. And if you can sort of promise us this huge amount of money, then nuclear, a certain aspect of nuclear gets locked in. Uh, the point about nuclear, of course, is that it cannot be constructed without vast public subsidy. Just basically, it's the market has fled nuclear. The finance market won't touch nuclear with a barge pole, which is why you're seeing places like uh, China and Russia. And Russia are sort of outsourcing their nuclear to places like India, for example. These command and control countries can just say, well, okay, we'll, we'll pay for this. You know, there's a few discussions about Central Europe. Uh, Finland is a bit of an outlier, but again, uh, the new nuclear in Finland, the, the French EDF EPR reactor, is tantamount to a failure, hugely over cost and hugely over time, with the Finnish suing the French for sort of some forms of malpractice and the French suing the Finns for some form of malpractice, which is now resolved, but it sort of just goes to show the, the problems associated with that reactor. And if you look at the French, it's a horrible mess, with half of France's nuclear reactor fleet offline in 2022 with safety problems. EDF, Electricity de France, are in deep trouble, essentially bankrupt, which is why Macron, the French president, had to essentially nationalize the last tranche of EDF. EDF are 64 billion in debt, reporting a record 19 billion loss this year. And then comes exponential radioactive waste and decommissioning costs on the horizon, which are uncosted. And their reactors are getting old. Everything falls apart. There's an estimated 50 to 100 billion pound bill for mandatory French reactor safety upgrades. So the French are essentially sitting on a, a little bit of an economic time bomb here that the French community, the French public, are not necessarily aware of. So we'll talk a bit more about the issues around decommissioning a little later. But most of the issues you're talking about with these French plants are around older reactors, the ones built in the 70s and 80s, which are admittedly coming to the, near the end of their life, or at least to a point where it becomes more expensive for them to keep going than it is to simply just decommission them. Now, these are reactors that a few years ago were actually making quite healthy profits, and the owners probably made a lot of money over the last few decades, as nuclear power stations are very cheap when it comes to fuel, even putting it up against its main competitor, natural gas, a nuclear fuel station's cost is only about 7% of that of a gas plant, being about 4.4 million per year against a gas plant, which is around 58 million per year. So a lot of these new plants, the owner's probably expecting that they're going to lose a lot of money up front as it's very expensive to build the plant in the first place, but they're probably expecting to make a lot of money on the back end as they're only paying 7% of the fuel costs. Do you think they should still be expecting to make a lot of money on the back end even after they paid off this very expensive nuclear power plant? That's probably not the case anymore because uranium feedstock is expensive, whereas, of course, uh, renewable feedstock, the sun and the wind, is free. So there's a, there's a huge difference between these two things. And then one begins to talk about geopolitics and strategic military. Kazakhstan is a huge supplier of uranium. And right now, all of Kazakhstan's uranium supplies to the world, which I think it's something like 42% of all reactors worldwide depend on Kazakhstan. And as we speak, that fuel is going through Russian poor. Now, that brings into sort of questions of strategic, geopolitical and military, because what's essentially happening is in terms of bans on, on Russia, nuclear is being completely excluded from all of that. So in answer to your question, yes, construction costs are gargantuan. The industry then argues that reactors can run for 40, 50, 60, 100 years, and then they put that into their sums. Whereas the reality is we found that 
around about 30 to 40 years, things begin to go seriously wrong and reactors, like all things, wear out, things fall apart. And as we've seen in France, the French Grand Carénage, the French uh, reactor upgrade, to cost up to 100 billion euros is because of the aging process. So no, this business about nuclear being cheap in the long run is deeply tendentious. And then one comes to the exponential waste and decommission costs, which are basically as yet uncosted. Now, the old model was that you would lose a bunch of money in the first 20 years, and then you make a lot of money in the next 20 years, paying for the decommission at the end of it. But if you're now saying that they're going to lose a lot of money for that first 20 years and probably not even make that much money in the next 20 years, then they're likely not going to have much money left over for properly decommissioning these power plants. And seeing as you make no money during the decommission phase, these companies are more than likely to just declare bankruptcy and avoid the expensive process of decommissioning, which if that happens, who gets stuck with the bill to actually properly carry out the decommission of these old nuclear plants? I've been involved in decommissioning in the UK and in France. Uh, the French invited me on the last day of their inquiry into how to decommission eventually all of their reactor fleet. And the last day it was me against the head of EDF decommissioning. And the French Assemblée Nationale, the French government, has published their report on decommissioning, which states that EDF don't have the finances nor the technical ability as yet to decommission their reactors. The point about decommissioning is that essentially each reactor has a different history. These things are hugely complex pieces of kit. And working with decommissioners, you realize that to move a certain amount of radioactivity from A to B takes a huge amount of work, a huge amount of preparation. And decommissioning creates all kinds of problems as well too. So decommissioning is a problem. If you're worried about the French not having the technical skills to carry out some of these commissions, what are your thoughts then on the aging plants in some of these countries like Pakistan, Bulgaria, Iran, Ukraine, or even North Korea? Countries which may not have the resources in order to access those same levels of technical expertise. What is currently in place to stop these countries improperly carrying out their decommissioning or even just throwing the nuclear waste into the sea to save a bunch of money on storage? Um, all nuclear regulation international is not mandatory. So the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, works to try to formulate codes by which, say, decommissioning or waste or the rest of it happens. But at the end of the day, it's up to each government to do essentially what it does. There is no global policeman to oversee this process. And there are very real concerns about states who may not live up to expectations. Now, where nuclear advocates will point toward is nuclear power's capabilities for providing baseload power. Now, we covered power generation quite extensively in our post-oil episode, so you can go check that out if you want a more detailed explanation. But to push forward today, and to probably oversimplify a bit, for those of you who are unaware, electricity demand across the day may not be consistent depending on the area of the city. Particularly for residential areas, around 40% of the grid's capacity is in need 24 hours a day. In your home, imagine that being the things that power your refrigerator, your microwave, and that light bulb you left on in the bathroom all night. Up to around 60% of it comes from what's known as peak periods. This is the area often around 4 to 9 p.m. when people all come home from work or school and then simultaneously turn on their air conditioners, their ovens, their kettles, and their TVs, at which time power tends to dramatically spike up. Now, energy sources like nuclear and coal are usually great for baseload power, as it runs really consistently and it takes a long time to ramp up and shut down one of these plants. Gas and hydropower, as well as power stored in batteries though, are usually great for peak power, as they can relatively cheaply add that 60% power to the grid exactly when it's required, as they can turn on and off really quickly. With these sort of plants, it's actually quite economical to only run it during the peak periods. So many countries at the moment use coal or nuclear for their base load, and then switch to sources like renewables and natural gas during the peak times. Well, that's the concept anyway. But now with the increased prevalence of people working at home and many businesses not using the conventional 9 to 5 working hours, the lines between peak and non-peak are getting increasingly blurry. But for the majority of the industry, it's still viewed as a key concept when it comes to power generation. So without nuclear or coal, what source would you look to to provide the baseload power needs for most countries? According to the, the, the former head of the UK National Grid, baseload is an outdated concept, and it is. We don't switch on our factories at nine o'clock and turn them off at five anymore. What we need is distributed and flexible power. 
you know, in terms of cost, time, and doability, it's renewable expansion in all sectors, energy efficiency and management, rapidly advancing storage technologies, grid modernization, interconnection, and market innovation from supply to service provision that will power the, the net zero energy transition. Now, the universally acknowledged International Energy Agency says quite clearly that it is renewables that will do the heavy lifting for net zero. This is just simply what's happening. And then questions of, it's not intermittency, it's more variability. When the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And then one goes back to advancing storage technologies. Grid modernization is absolutely key. So grid upgrade, how to throw power across distance, interconnection, and most importantly, energy efficiency and management. And admittedly, that is where developed countries seem to be moving at the moment upgrading their battery and storage technology in order to store that excess power generated by their renewable energy sources when the sun is shining and when the wind is blowing, holding onto it and then feeding it back into the grid when it's needed at night or when the wind is still. As wind turbines often create far more energy than they can actually feed into the grid or be used. So one of the major problems has always been finding an economic way to store that extra energy created by the wind turbines and hold onto it for a period when they may not be blowing. If the industry is moving that way and technology is moving that way, what is the bottleneck we're currently stuck at at the moment? Why are we still using coal and nuclear for quite a lot of our baseload needs? Where's the bottleneck we're stuck at currently? It comes down to politics, to lobby, to, to questions of uh, nuclear power association with war making ability, to an entrenched 20th century technology people sort of cling to. I mean, we've started much, much, much too late, and then we've been diverted by stuff like nuclear, which is just too late and too expensive. The lowest hanging fruit is energy efficiency. So reducing overall demand is at the heart of it all. But then again, if we're shutting down coal and oil, then we have to pump up electricity. The point is that no miracles are needed here. As I said, 95% of all new electricity power capacity additions this year is renewables. But there's no such thing as a free lunch. First thing is grid upgrade, which is essential, okay? We need to push power across distance effectively. Now that will cost and that will take a bit of time. And then it's about energy efficiency. It's about demand side management. It's about storage technologies. It's about interconnection, throw power across distance where in one place the wind doesn't blow, in another place the sun doesn't shine. And it's about distributed and centralized smart grids. Nobody would have thought that we would be here right now in, you know, 10 years ago. So the growth has been exponential. It has shocked everybody. And that holds out huge hope uh, for the future. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. What we're seeing here are economists and public policy experts waving one red flag and nuclear power advocates waving the other, with the public policy experts giving pretty dire warnings such as the incoming obsolescence of current economic modeling for nuclear power plants. Now, I also believe that often following the money will tell you a lot about where the industry is going, and the financial sector is watching the price of renewable power generation fall through the floor, and as such, there is very little private finance looking to put their hand up to fund nuclear power generation, a complete backflip from the 70s and 80s. And now with renewables becoming increasingly cheaper, and Europe coming off the back of a massive price shock, from having to cut off Russian gas in just a matter of weeks, many more politicians are beginning to see some advantages to moving to an energy source that they control within their own borders. And with the price of nuclear going up and the price of renewables going down, these governments are starting to think twice about investing billions into the development of plants heading in the wrong financial direction. 
But if that's the case in countries like France and Germany are heading that way, why is it that the US is walking in two directions simultaneously, shutting down nuclear plants in California whilst building new ones in Georgia? Is it economics? Is it politics? Or is it something else? More importantly, which one is likely to come out ahead out of all of this? Well, to answer that, we're joined by our second guest. Part two, the price of particles. The nuclear power plants built in the late 60s, the 1970s, 1980s, going into the 1990s, cost much more than had been promoted or estimated when construction first began. In the U.S., there's a study that shows that first generation nuclear power plants cost triple what they had originally been estimated and took twice as long to build. David Schlissel is the Director of Resource Planning and Analysis at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. David has over 30 years experience as a regulatory attorney and consultant on energy and utility issues, and has testified before numerous organizations, including the US Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, covering cases across 35 of the US states. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. When these large nuclear power plants were built, they cost the ratepayers of the owners, the customers of their owners, a lot of money. The industry came back and being good salesmen and women said, we've got new designs that will be cheaper to build and will take less time to build. After spending $9 billion on the two in South Carolina, because the estimated cost had gone up so dramatically, they were canceled. The two in Georgia at Plant Vogel are just now being completed, having originally been claimed by the companies that were going to own them that it would cost roughly $14 billion to build these two very large reactors with new designs that would facilitate the construction, make it easier, and that they would be online at the end of 2016 and the second unit would be online in 2017. Uh, the first unit came online a few weeks ago, uh, so that's roughly six and a half to seven years late. The second unit, the last unit, it's due to come online the end of this year, early next year. It'll also be six and a half, seven years late. And the cost has skyrocketed from the originally estimated 14 billion to somewhere in the range of $35 billion. Now, I've worked in the public sector before, and I've seen firsthand how unforeseen circumstances and dodgy contractors can extend the life of a project right out and therefore blow out your costs. But when looking at nuclear power plant construction, these projects always seem to be ludicrously far over budget, with the one you just quoted being at triple the price budgeted originally. And that tripling the budget is just in construction. It doesn't even factor in the interest payments or opportunity loss suffered by the government by having that money tied up in this project. So why is it that the nuclear industry seems so prone to cost overruns and setbacks like this? One is they're really big projects and really big mega projects have their own dynamics. They're difficult to manage, problems occur, and then the problems escalate as further designs occur and the owners want to try to make up time they've lost so they move ahead quickly. The staff of the Public Service Commission in Georgia that regulates the rates of Georgia Power Company has been monitoring the Vogel project since it started construction 2010-2011. It's a horror show and it's going to be a horror show that the customers of Georgia Power Company are going to pay for. The two new units at Plant Vogel are going into service six and a half, seven years late. During that time, it's been estimated that the customers of Georgia Power paid maybe close to $2 billion in replacement power costs because these plants weren't ready in time. The company bought power from more expensive sources of power. The staff of the Georgia Public Service Commission has estimated that the average cost of power from the new vocal units is going to be somewhere in the range of $167 per megawatt hour. 
Now, Georgia Power could get four megawatt hours of power from renewables for less than $167 an hour. It's expected to pay on average for each megawatt hour from Vogel. Okay, so yes, the construction fee was very high and the interest payments on the loans will also be very high, but the profit margins due to the lower cost of fuel to power the plant will be very low going forward. And doing some back of the envelope math, after around 24 years or so, those loans will be paid off and the plant will start to actually turn a profit, making decent returns every year after that. It's a case of you eat your vegetables now, but you get the dessert later. But having said that, why are we seeing plants like Diablo Canyon in California, which was commissioned in 1985, shutting their doors and beginning decommission of the plant? Surely by now they've paid off their loans and they'll be well into the high profit period. So why shut the plant down? The reason is, is that the cost of power is so cheap that it doesn't make sense to run the nuclear power plants. And that as they've aged, it's more expensive than it had been anticipated to run them. So I understand that back when they first approved the plant, back in 1968, they were expecting to make X amount of money, taking the amount per megawatt hour that they're getting paid at the time and extrapolating that figure out from 1968 onwards. But now that the cost of energy, in other words, the amount of money that companies are willing to pay to the plant to buy their electricity to then pass on to the customers at wholesale, is now so low that it's nowhere near the figures they would have projected back in the 1960s. And Diablo Canyon has worked out that it would be cheaper to simply cut their losses here and begin the expensive decommissioning phase now rather than sink billions more dollars into the plant to bring it up to modern safety standards. Figuring that by the time they got through this retrofit, the price that these power companies are willing to pay for the energy is going to drop even further. So obviously these numbers are way off the projections that were originally proposed back in the 1960s. So what drove down these costs so dramatically to bring about this whole situation? Cheaper renewable prices. And for a long time, we've had low natural gas prices in the US. So both of those were cheaper. Private power companies don't really care where the energy comes from as much as what price they can buy it at. And for California, where the sun shines most of the time and there's plenty of room to put solar and wind farms together. And that in combination with the recent upticks in battery storage capabilities, they can now sell that energy to power companies at an even cheaper price than the nuclear plants can. Yes, the nuclear fuel is cheaper to power your station than gas would be, but sunlight is even cheaper than buying nuclear fuel negating the one major cost benefit of running a nuclear power station. Now, Diablo Canyon went into commission in 1985, and it's paid off all its loans, and the principal investors are probably more than happy with the return they got in their investment over the period since it's been operating. But what about plants that are coming online now, who, if renewables continue to trend in this direction, are going to be undercut by the price that renewable companies are able to sell their electricity at? So for the sake of the argument, what happens if a nuclear power station who still has huge debts behind them and hasn't reached their 16th or 24th year to be able to actually be making any money? What happens if that plant goes bankrupt? Who's stuck with the bill of decommissioning that plant and removing all the nuclear waste out there if the company simply just doesn't have the money to do so? That's a really interesting question. We have not had that situation. We'll have to see down the line as plants are shut down. What the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission approved is a method of decommissioning the plant in which basically you shut it down and you have guards around it for decades. And while some of the radioactivity decreases significantly and some continues, you also have time for the money that the utility has put aside for decommissioning has more time to earn interest and over time letting your in the investments they make give them more money so that it'll be cheaper in the year you know 2080 than today well if that's the case where do you see the industry going over the next 10 years or so it's hard to predict i believe that some new nuclear power plants will be built because the federal government's throwing so much money so many billions of dollars at them and some people haven't learned from the past. A professor at MIT once warned students in the nuclear energy department to remember that nuclear power is just a way to boil water. 
It's not a religion. So I think some will be built, but the costs of renewables, battery storage are declining so fast. And we have those tools today that over time, nuclear power will look like a even worse investment than it is today. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So the economics around nuclear power aren't looking great. And even if we were to try and attempt to ramp up, now supply chains just aren't ready, particularly for countries like France, who rely on Niger for the majority of their uranium. On top of that, capital investment is currently fleeing the industry, as most investors aren't looking to risk their money on a declining asset that doesn't pay off for 25 years. It's a pretty bad hand of cards for the nuclear industry. But, admittedly, there are more cards to draw. The technology the industry uses today, light water reactors, is pretty old technology. In fact, it wasn't even the best version of the reactors back when it was first rolled out in the 50s. It was only chosen because it was more economical and they were already going into production for military purposes, meaning there'd be some sort of industry already set up around it. It was the economists that chose the light water reactor, not the scientists. If we were to now ask those modern day scientists, they'd point out that these days, the nuclear industry has a lot more options open to them. We have plutonium reactors, we have SMRs, we have Gen 4 reactors, we even have fusion energy reactors, reactors that are far more efficient and output far more power than current nuclear reactors do, which means we're about to have a bunch of technology come online, giving us even more energy for even less fuel. So is this the answer to all of our problems? Is that the path currently laying ahead of us? Or will the economists sitting at the end of the table once again, simply confine it to the laboratory? Well, to answer that, we're doing our next guest. Part three. Elemental economics. So look, I think the first thing to say is a lot of these factors are very country specific. In the US, a lot of this is about economics. A lot of the power stations that are shutting down in the US, the utilities are choosing to do so because they think that operating their calculations, operating these power plants is simply not making enough money. In Germany, this is all federal government policy. It's the result of widespread dislike, widespread concern about nuclear safety in particular that was you know, stimulated in particular by Fukushima. I mean, there's a whole long complex history of nuclear energy in Germany and an increasingly hostile relationship between the public and the energy production sector. This exemplifies for me one of the important policy aspects of talking about nuclear energy, which is that the factors that allow or impede nuclear energy in different countries are different. Nuclear energy is currently doing well in countries where the central government is willing and able to write an extremely large check for the construction of new reactors. That is generally not the case in advanced Western democracies. So in the United States, for example, there are various forms of central government support for nuclear energy. But at the end of the day, the lion's share is going to have to come from the utilities building it. Uh, in China, in various Middle Eastern states, the central government is just willing to write a very large check to pay for the construction of reactors. And nuclear energy is doing well in those countries. James Acton holds the Jessica T. Matthews Chair and is the co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. A physicist by training, he's testified on this subject to numerous authorities, including the U.S. House of Representatives Armed Service Committee, the Congressionally Chartered U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, and the House Appropriations Committee on Nuclear Modernization and Nuclear Energy. Acton was also the co-author of Why Fukushima Was Preventable, a groundbreaking study into the root causes of the accident and what could have been done to prevent it. And in addition to all of this, he's also a member of the International Advisory Council for the Luxembourg Forum on Preventing Nuclear Catastrophe, being a widely regarded expert specializing in the cutting edge of nuclear technology. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. In the case of India, yes, the central government, as I understand it, just essentially decides to fund a lot of these reactors. 
you know, there are some cases such as Hungary, for example, which is there's currently reactors from Russia under construction. And the Russian government there is offering very generous financing terms. Essentially, the the country constructing the reactor in that case is subsidizing that construction through its own government in return for some kind of long term cost sharing repayment which is also the case, for example, in Turkey, where there's Russian reactors under construction. Now, the real boom in nuclear energy was present during the 1970s up until around the early 80s, where massive amounts of nuclear plants were built, particularly in the United States and Europe. Upfront capital was cheap, and because so many were being built, economies of scale really began to kick in. But by the time we hit the mid-80s, nuclear plant construction began dwindling very quickly. Now, most of the reactors that were built during this boom in the 1970s are now coming up past their 45-year life cycle and will require a huge amount of investments to bring them up to code again and modernize the reactors. But looking at the modernizations these plants are being asked to do, how much will it actually improve their efficiency for them? Is sinking further billions into these plants going to make these companies more money or is it simply being done to prevent a nuclear incident from happening and is just a cost for these companies to bear? So most of the reactors under construction in the world today are more advanced types of reactors that were built in the 60s and 70s, so-called light water reactors. And that's because in these reactors, the material that's used both as a moderator for slowing down the neutrons and a coolant to extract the heat is normal light water as opposed to a few reactors, none of which are under construction, I think, that use heavy water, which is a rare form of water that has to be extracted. You know, as I said, a lot of the reactors under construction today are still of this light water type that are much more advanced, safer, much more efficient, cheaper, but still of that same basic design that was built in the 60s and 70s. Uh, Just as kind of an interesting, I hope interesting, historical footnote, the reason, the fundamental reason why that design took off originally was because it was the design that the US Navy chose for its submarine reactors. And then the first land-based US reactors, the first power reactors in the US, uh, were evolved from that submarine design. And then it kind of took off from there. So there are other technologies that are used to generate power, but light water reactors have been the fundamental one. There is a lot of interest, though, and this is the area in which I'm kind of cautiously optimistic, but optimistic nonetheless about the future of nuclear, is there's a huge amount of interest at the moment in so-called SMRs, small modular reactors. And the idea here is that um, these reactors would be a lot smaller So their construction costs would be cheaper. They would involve less expensive safety equipment. They could be assembled in modules in a factory and then transported out to the site. So you could hope to get significant reductions in the cost of construction through serial production. This is kind of the great hope for nuclear energy, to be honest, right now, is that these SMRs take off. There are a very small number under development at the moment, but ambitious plans in a lot of place to try to construct a lot more of them. The major trouble SMRs are having at the moment, though, seems to be economical. You see, there's only a handful of companies actually developing SMRs at the moment, all with very shiny video packages. But when it comes to actually being implemented into power grids, it seems China, and now recently Russia, are the only one that seems to be actually pushing forward with the project. With China placing one of their prototype SMRs into their eco-city in Changjian on Tianjin Island in the south of China. But even with China, whose state is heavily invested in the process, they found the project to be running way over cost, far behind schedule, and most damning, producing energy at a far more expensive rate than the basic wind or solar plant. Now, obviously, once you get a few of these things in operation and work out some of the kinks, then the price is likely to come down per unit. But with so few countries or private power firms lining up to buy masses of these things, I get the feeling they may struggle to reach any sort of economy of scale with this. And there'll always be specialty novelty items that someone might use to go to the moon or something but unlikely to become mainstay across many countries. What has been your read on the Chinese SMR project, and is it likely to disrupt the industry, or will the massive upfront capital costs probably prevent it from reaching a wider audience? You know, if you talk to folks in the US nuclear industry at the moment, they'll give you incredibly optimistic, rosy assessments of how quickly and cheaply they can build SMRs. I think those are almost certainly far too optimistic and rosy. On the other hand, it does seem to me that SMRs are a potentially viable idea for addressing the challenge of the huge upfront capital costs 
associated with constructing large reactors, which has really been, at least in the United States, which is the case I know best, the bane of building new reactors in the US. You know, one issue here, interesting one, is that US utilities are generally very small by international standards. And they operate in liberalized electricity markets. And even with some government support, have found it very difficult to raise enough money, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars uh, to build large reactors. As with any kind of large, complex industrial construction, you're always going to have cost overruns and delays at the beginning. The question is whether you can produce enough units to bend that cost curve downwards. And SMRs may achieve that goal. Serial production in factories and taking then the components out to sites seems to me to be a potentially plausible approach to bending down that cost curve faster. There is a real danger here, given how many SMR designs are currently in the works. You kind of have a, a global coordination problem insofar as it would clearly be better for building reactors if countries agreed to focus on a small number of designs, two or three or whatever it was. In reality, lots of countries are sponsoring their own designs and I'm sure that we're going to see an awfully large number of design at various stages of the construction process. And that I think is good for each individual company, but bad for the world as a whole. So whether or not the industry is going to be able to solve those, that kind of fairly complex coordination problem, I just don't know. But just relying on national governments to throw money at this in my mind, may not be the best long-term strategy, particularly when a lot of these governments are only thinking one election cycle ahead of themselves most of the time. You know, If I was an MP and I had to choose between funding a gas or renewable plant that within two years I could be standing in front of with my big ceremonial ribbon-cutting scissors in hand, or I could put that money toward an SMR that has a chance of working sometime in the short to medium-term future. And that the first evidence coming back from the project seems to be indicating that it's turning out to be just a smaller version of the same economic problem. These SMR firms are probably going to need private money to fund enough R&D to get this project off the ground and become viable to other outside investors. But looking at these numbers I have in front of me now, how do you convince private investors who are just looking to make a profit to jump on board for this one? The short answer is I don't know whether you can or not. You know, a lot is going to depend on how long those first reactors take to build and whether, you know, people are convinced that building more of them really is going to bend the cost curve down. I don't have a good answer to that. The, the one thing that I would say is I think nuclear energy is at a structural disadvantage here. Not, I think, because in my opinion, it's over-regulated, but at least in the US, because other forms of energy production, particularly fossil fuels, are under-regulated. Nuclear energy is extremely highly regulated, and that's good. It ought to be very highly regulated. But by comparison, I think we under-regulate fossil fuels. So you do have this structural problem with nuclear industry being relatively more heavily regulated than other forms of energy deserve to be. Um, and that structural problem, I think, may prevent nuclear from ever becoming a key energy source alongside renewables that I think it probably deserves to be. So, you know, look, I'm not somebody who is 100% convinced by any means whatsoever that we're going to see a renaissance of nuclear energy and SMRs are going to save the day. I think there are these structural problems that we may never get around to addressing. But I'm certainly more optimistic than I was, I don't know, say five, certainly 10 years ago. Well, on the subject of regulations, when we think of regulations in the nuclear industry, we all probably think of countries like France, Germany, or Japan having fairly high regulatory standards. But as your book points out, even when things seem very well regulated on the surface, there can be lots of little errors and problems underneath, with the ones in Japan eventually resulting in the Fukushima disaster of 2011. So how with countries like Nigeria, North Korea, Egypt, and Bulgaria in the mix, how well do you expect them to be able to stick to these regulatory standards required? I think there is a concern here that regulating nuclear energy is an extremely difficult technical 
skill. Everything we've learned from Fukushima suggests that even a country like Japan, with an incredibly strong science and technology base that by all appearances took safety very seriously, had some pretty profound regulatory issues when it came to nuclear energy. And I would certainly argue that the fundamental problem, the fundamental most underlying cause of Fukushima was regulatory failure more than anything else. So, you know, we shouldn't fall into the trap here of just saying that, you know, existing regulators are doing a great job and we only have to worry about the new guys. That said, I don't think there's any question that countries developing nuclear energy programs for the first time do have to develop a regulatory infrastructure from scratch. And that is an extremely difficult, intensive, expensive process. If I was in charge of energy policy in a developing country, I'm not at all sure that I would decide that nuclear energy is in my country's interests. Just when you look at the costs of getting it up and running, it's not clear at all to me that that's what I would think my country's interests would best serve. I think there is a challenge here in developing high-quality regulatory infrastructures from scratch. And there's assistance through the International Atomic Energy Agency, through operator organizations. But at the end of the day, a huge amount here is going to depend on state capacity. And I just don't think there's any way around it. Well, do these safety concerns disappear if we're looking at newer technologies? You know, if these countries are building Gen 4 reactors, does a lack of regulation play as much of a risk? In the very, very broadest, crudest terms, there's kind of three schools of thought here about the technological future. The first one is we should just continue with existing light water, large light water reactors. The second one, which we've discussed at some length, are these small modular reactors. And the third one is these very advanced technology reactors, these so-called Gen 4 reactors. The split is not quite as clear as I've made out because some of these small modular designs are based on existing light water reactors. Some of the small modular designs would involve advanced fast reactor technology. So the split is not quite as clear as I've made out there. But there are these six so-called Gen 4 conceptual designs that have been on the books for a while. I think going down the Gen 4 route would be a tremendous mistake. It strikes me it is simply repeating the mistakes of the past to try to build large, incredibly complicated, high-technology reactors. It is choosing the route that is most likely to give you huge upfront capital costs, large cost overruns, large delays. The reason why I'm so strongly in favor of pushing the SMR route and hoping it works out is because it addresses the problem upfront capital costs, cost overruns, cost delays. There seems to me no more sure route of exacerbating those problems than going down the large reactor advanced technology Gen 4 route. It's not about economic energy production. It's about technologists having fun and coming up with concepts that they think are technically beautiful and elegant economics be damned. And, you know, I think that's a huge mistake. I also think the security risks of, not all, but of some of these Gen 4 concepts are much more serious, precisely because for some of these Gen 4 concepts, they really only make sense if you're recycling fuel, if you're reprocessing fuel, if you're extracting the plutonium, if you're using to build more fuel. This is not true of all the Gen 4 concepts, but it's certainly true of some of them. And from a security perspective, that is also a route that I think it would be a big mistake to go down. What about looking at nuclear fusion reactions rather than the current fission ones? You know, we've seen some great experiments done with the Russian tokamak reactors, and these experiments have produced a whole lot of energy in a very clean way. But do you think the issues like the massive expense in creating the required tritium, or the fact that to run one of these reactors for an entire year would require more pure beryllium than the entire world produces in the space of a year? Do you think these factors are going to push the costs too high, pushing this option off the table for the near term? I think fusion would be great as a technology. A huge amount here is going to depend on economics and whether it will work out, I think, remains to be seen. And more than, I mean, as with all of these things, is going to be primarily an economic question. It would clearly be premature at this point to make a massive investment in fusion. Fusion is clearly further out than that. 
When it comes to renewables, you do have intermittency issues with renewables. We could help mitigate those through much better energy storage. And there's a huge amount of work and effort going into improved energy storage at the moment. And I think that is money that is all extremely well spent. But it seems to me that the energy future that I hope we head towards, at least kind of over the next few decades, who knows about the longer term, but would be some combination particularly of nuclear for base load and a lot of renewables on top of that. I mean, a majority of, of renewables, but I do think nuclear is going to have a, a role in base load if it works out economically. Knowing the economics that's in front of us at the moment and the push to lower emissions as quick as possible, what do you see our energy makeup being in the near term? I see no reason whatsoever to assume that the dramatic growth in renewables isn't going to continue. I very much think it will continue. I very much hope and expect that better energy storage is going to enable that growth. I think renewables are clearly going to be the leading edge of the energy transition. And I very much hope and expect that fossil fuels will become increasingly less important in electricity production. The huge uncertainty is the role of nuclear. And I think a lot is going to depend on how over the next, let's say, five to 10 years, SMRs play out in particular. If the hopes for SMRs aren't realized, if you don't achieve economies of scale, if they don't solve the upfront capital costs of construction, then I think at least in many Western countries, nuclear is going to become increasingly less important. You know, we're going to see existing nuclear reactors in the US phased out. I think we're pretty unlikely to see the construction of new large light water reactors. On the other hand, if SMRs do live up to their, or even come vaguely close to living up to what industry thinks they could achieve, I can see nuclear continuing to shoulder a significant part of the electricity burden and maybe even increasing. I think the next five to 10 years is going to be pretty critical on this front, actually. It's always shocking to me how much science can but won't do because of the economics of it. When you ask someone at NASA about futuristic concepts like mining an asteroid, the answer is quite often, yes, we could do that right now. And we even know the exact comets that contain trillions of dollars worth of substances like helium. But before you get your hopes up, there's no way any mining company is going to want to spend $100 billion to get there only to be able to bring back just $25 million worth of helium. But the very day that it does become profitable, that's likely when the next space race begins. Power generation is exactly the same. There are so many amazing scientists and engineers that have been working on making renewables cheaper. And the reason we've achieved the amount of progress we have is not because people felt like it was the right thing to do, but because so many amazing scientists and engineers have been working around the clock, making renewables cheaper, more efficient, and lasting longer. Knowing that if renewables dip below the profit margins of other substances like coal, well, then people actually begin to take it seriously. The economics set the energy policy. And the economics for the nuclear power industry right now look pretty awful. And the industry is going to either have to adapt or continue to rely on autocratic governments for their support. Now, I'm not against nuclear power. I think it's fantastic technology that has some amazing use cases. But I also know that it takes almost 20 years to build these things. And if governments were looking to lower emissions today, I'm pretty skeptical that this is the answer to their question. And not just a way to buy fossil fuels another 10 to 15 years in operation. Even after all this, I still think we should continue to invest in nuclear energy, whether that be into SMRs or into fusion energy, but with the overall goal of making it cheaper and more accessible to the general public, and therefore widely adopted. If we want to change the world, we're not going to be able to do it with just the physicist and the engineer, but we're going to need that economist as well. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. I always love doing these more practical economics episodes, as we always end up way down a bunch of rabbit holes. So we hope you enjoyed this one, as I'm sure it won't be our last economics episode. And if you want to keep up to date when we drop that inevitable next depressing economics episode, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeHillyOz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, this week I'd like to thank Arn C, Stuart Schroff, Yarp Kramer, and Shane Sadamet, who are the latest Patreons to sign up as of time of recording. 
This show is only possible because of fantastic people like this. And if you have a couple dollars you feel you could spare each month, then we will be eternally grateful for the support. So a massive thanks to our Patreons as always, and a very special thanks to these four in particular, as this episode on nuclear energy is all thanks to you. As usual, here are our list of three book recommendations. The first is Global Energy Fundamentals, Economics, Politics, and Policy by Simone Daglia Pietra for a great crash course on this issue as a whole. The second is The Economics of Nuclear Power for a more detailed look at the nuclear power industry itself. And the third is A Bright Future by Joshua Goldstein for a look at the future of energy transition. I want to thank this week's guests, Paul Dortman, David Schlissel, and James Acton. All of you were absolutely fantastic on this episode, and we can't wait to have you back soon. I also want to thank my staff, starting with the primary researchers of this piece, Raul Devanarayanan, Jamie Tano, and Nick McNally. Both sides here pulled amazing amounts of research for both pros and cons of this argument, and put together compelling cases for both. So, incredibly great work on this one. On top of them, I'd also like to thank the rest of my staff. Weber Carr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniel Isabella, Genevieve Dolomay, Ned Ostiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cottalem, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, Scott Misler Ferguson, Jemima Pentreath, and Robbie Sutton, a research assistant of writers, Jamie Tanuam, the director, Raul Devanarayanan, our OSIN analyst, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Rissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. None of this show is possible without this amazing team. But with that said, the Red Line will be back in a fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.